passage has three kind of distinct stories within it, and yet it pulls us to a greater and bigger truth. Um, See if you can find it in there. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. I'm going to read it to you. During those days, another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmethia. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. And he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we just have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is God's word. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you just for the amazing opportunity to be back with friends and family in this beautiful place here in San Francisco. God, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes to see something greater, to see something bigger than what we're experiencing right now. We love you in your name, amen. When my daughter was about two or three years old, she's now 23 and getting married in about two months, and it's freaking me out (laughs) because I need to walk her down the aisle, give her away, and then I turn around and do the wedding myself. Not sure how that's gonna go. But the other day, she was ticking me off, so I said to her fiance, when I say, do you take this woman, I really mean it. (laughs) He's like, what do you mean by that? But when she was about two or three, like a lot of little kids, she was really into Sesame Street, and she was down with Elmo. Man, we listened to a lot of Elmo songs. 
So this commercial came on TV for Sesame Street Live. And I'm like, hey, Anna, do you want to go to Sesame Street Live? She had no idea what it was, but she's like, yes, or whatever little kids say. So it was uh, like a big show. They dress up in animals. You can say the same thing maybe in Times Square, you know, like people walking around. But you pay a lot more money for this one. <laughs> like a lot. So it was at the San Jose Arena. It used to be called the Shark Tank. I have no idea what it's called now. So instead of paying for parking, I drove a little bit to the right where there's free parking because that's just how I do it. Park in this garage. We had a 10-minute walk to get to the Sesame Street live show. We'd walked a couple of minutes. There was a guy making balloons, trying to make some money. He was really bad at it. He couldn't even make a dog. He just had like a long thing. And he's like, this is what it is, a sword. My two or three-year-old daughter's like, Dad, I want a sword. I'm like, no, babe, we're going to Sesame Street Live. But all she could think about in the moment was this balloon guy. Eventually, I got her away from that. In a couple more minutes on the way to see Sesame Street Live, we see these police officers on horses. To her, that was the greatest event. I'm like, I could have saved a lot of money. I could have just said, we're going to go to balloon guy and see guys on horses. She loved the horses. When I'm like, Anna, we got to go. We're running late. She starts to cry. I'm like, you're crying because we're going to Sesame Street Live? No, I love the horses. We get closer to Sesame Street Live, the big event. And outside, they're selling really cheap imitation things, those kinds where police show and the people run away, T-shirts. And she thinks, this is Sesame Street Live. Dad, can it get any better than this? I had no idea that I would be dragging a crying girl in to see the biggest show that she's ever seen in her life. Because all these things along the way grabbed her attention. We finally made it to Sesame Street Live. Man, I wish we'd just stayed outside. <laughs> what if she never grew out of this? What if at 23 she buys a ticket for Taylor Swift, which she apparently were dancing to her, that? <laughs> yeah. It's the worst, man. <laughs> What if she paid for her own money for Taylor Swift and, I got, and she comes home and I'm like, how was the concert? She goes, I don't know, I never went in. The balloon guy was there. <laughs> you see, with maturity, we see things for what they are along the way because we know what the greater thing or the purpose is of where we're going. And we're not so pulled down by the distractions. I think Mark is addressing that in a huge way. That even though Jesus just said 4,000, the disciples were like, huh, we forgot bread in the boat. You see, in Jesus' opening, min opening message in his ministry that we looked at a while ago in the book of Mark, back when I used to work here still, we've been in the book of Mark a long time, huh? <laughs> when Dave gave me this passage, I'm like, you're only in the middle of Mark still? <laughs> Sweet, I know he did some other things. But he said this, repent, the kingdom of God is here. That word repent in Greek is metanoia. And so often we translate it, which is correctly to translate it this way, is to go a different direction. To repent means to go one way and you're like, I see that there's wrong and so I'm turning around the other way. But it also means something bigger than that. See, our Christian lives, Jesus is not just saying this game of ping pong where like, go this way and now go that way. And like, it, it really does mean go in a different direction. But what if that direction wasn't just flat, but back? You see, the word actually means in meta, the very etymology of the word, it implies from face value of two different things. 
Meta means beyond. And new means mind. So beyond your present way of thinking. So often we think, I just need to stop doing this. So I just turn. But I believe that Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here, is to pull back and see things for what they are because the kingdom is now here. He has the ability to look at sin or temptation or distractions and you can say, there's nothing for me there. That is repentance. So Jesus is not just saying, start behaving differently. He's saying, start thinking differently. Start having your heart be about bigger things. And in that mindset was the frustration of what Jesus was seeing in his people. Because in the middle of this book, in Mark chapter eight, you're gonna see a turn. So often it's the kingdom of God has invaded earth and we're seeing amazing healings and this power. But now Jesus very soon is gonna start talking about his death. He's feeling anxious, maybe. He's saying, I have found you. Are you found me? You see, there's three unique events within this one story that I read. The first, there's a second feeding of thousands of people from the amount of food that was only for one person. The second, there's a demand for a sign from heaven that sounded really annoyingly familiar to Jesus. And third, there's a new boat ride, but the same confusing conversation. The first event was this feeding Jesus and his disciples were again on the other side of the lake. They weren't in a, near his hometown. It believes that the audience that was there that day was a Gentile audience. It was very close to a, a, an area that we heard about before, Decapolis. Because we see this in Mark 7, 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis. See, when Mark is writing, he's looking back. And he's saying, what are the essential things to know? So when it mentions a place like Decapolis, in our minds, it may remind us of some things. But in our modern day thing, it's like, hey, we went to Vegas. I mean, there's a reference point of Vegas. Decapolis was a place where something amazing had happened. But Decapolis is also a place that, and later, like 68, 69 um, AD, when, when the Christians were under assault and Jerusalem was overthrown, Decapolis actually protected people of the faith. There's something to be noticed here. No doubt this crowd of 4,000 plus gathered because they just saw a healing or heard about a healing of a man who couldn't hear. But there was an, another amazing event in Mark recorded earlier in his gospel that also took place from this far, far from home. It was a story, if you remember, about the deliverance of a man named Legion. Legion was a man who was filled with thousands of evil spirits. And Jesus and his disciples had made his way across the lake. It was dark, and they heard sounds from a cave. They pull into this place, and a man comes running out because the chains couldn't even hold him. He was living in isolation and full of demons. And Jesus refuses the demon's desire to stay in this man, so he sends him into pigs. It's this crazy, crazy story. And people run out to see what happened. 
Let me read this part to you. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and the people were amazed. There's a couple moments of power that I want to bring attention to. There's a power of one changed life telling their story. This man who wanted to be with Jesus, it makes sense, right? His life was changed. Jesus, let me in the boat. I can be a part of your traveling story. I, like Jesus, he could be like the warm-up act. And now welcome a man once full of demons and now, you know. But he's like, no, you go home and you tell your story. Because there's a power of a changed truth. There's a power in your story. It's recorded with some hindsight, but all the people were amazed. And there's no doubt in my mind they started to think, wait, this man did this for you. Wait, this man is here again? I want to go hear him myself. And then these people who heard this amazing story get drawn into this three-day fasting conference where they had no food, but they were drawn to the Messiah because of the story that someone told. We get hung up on what are the words and what are the proof and how do I make sure people believe what I'm saying and what Jesus says, just tell the story of what I've done in your life. You see, there's a progression of a testimony that unfolds, and there's power in that. I told this story maybe years ago, but it rings true in my life. When I was a pastor in another state, I was in Maui, which isn't a state, it's the state of Hawaii, but Maui has its own like state of mind. <laughs> and my parents came to visit. And my dad came, and mom came, and my dad's like, my stomach doesn't feel so good. And we got to a point where he's like, oh, I need my appendix out. How many of you have gone to Maui to get surgery? No, you go to do other things. So he's in the emergency room, like, you need your appendix out. The doctor comes out. She was a nice lady, and she's like, we need to have your appendix. We're gonna do surgery right now. So I say to her, can I just, can I just pray for you right now? And she's like, sure. So I prayed for the doctor, um, you know, just for that. It's really weird. I pray that she knows what she's doing. She's like, what? That you do a great job. I didn't really say that, but I thought that. I'm like, like, this is my dad. Let's not take out more than his appendix, whatever, you know. She went in, she was doing the surgery for my dad. There was a nurse that was assisting in the surgery. This nurse and her husband had found out that her husband had stage four cancer like a week before. So I guess during the surgery, this was like post, like she told me this story, Hopefully they were like paying attention to my dad, but during the surgery, the doctor said to the nurse, hey, how's Daryl doing? How's your husband doing? He's like, oh, he's doing okay. I, I, we're thinking about find, trying to find a church. And this doctor's like, I don't go to church, but I just met this pastor 
I was younger then. I just met this young pastor. I'm like, I love that part. <laughs> and he prayed for me. I'll find out what church it is. Maybe you should go there. So after the surgery, she says, it went well. And she says, oh, where are you, a pastor? I told her. So she went, she laughed and told this nurse, oh, he's a pastor up at this church called Waipuna Chapel. Maybe you should go there. The next week, Dina, who's the nurse, brought her husband up and they came to church. They weren't really interested in God, but they were open to anything. He was a character. He would do things and like, I would ask like rhetorical questions and he would answer them. I'm like, Daryl, stop talking. <laughs> We'd have lunch every week. Daryl gave his life to Jesus. Daryl's family gave their life to Jesus. Daryl's friends gave their life to Jesus. My friend Daryl didn't make it after many years, but I spoke at a packed house funeral for him, and people were giving their life to Jesus. There's a power of even a simple testimony, a story that even this doctor who didn't know Jesus just said, there's somebody I met who you probably should want to meet, because that's the truth of a story. There's somebody that I met. It's not, let me tell you how much I know, it's let me tell you about who I met. There's a power of, provi of provision that God shows in this. You see, provision isn't an issue for Jesus. He's done it throughout history, and we re realize that Jesus didn't just begin when he lived. He's been a part of this since creation. There was a, a garden in Eden for provision. After the Exodus, there was daily morning food of manna for millions for provision. Even the prophet Elijah, when he had to hide, God used birds. He used ravens, which look a lot like crows who get into my garbage all the time. God used them to bring Elijah bread and meat each morning and each evening. Provision is not an issue for God. It's what he does. And throughout scripture, providing and provision for us and then we do it for others is a common theme. What I've seen is I just need to allow myself to be in a position to see God provide instead of doing it myself because provision is part of bigger things. Pay attention to the provisions throughout your life. There's a second event that starts to unfold. There's this demand for a sign that sounded at least annoyingly familiar. This is so interesting to me. I hate when speakers go, isn't this interesting? Because you're like, maybe, but I just said it. What I found interesting is that Mark is writing this and he made a special emphasis of Jesus sighing. This must have been like an exasperation. This kind of felt like when I would say something as a kid to my mom and she's like, ugh. I'm like, wait, that, does, that means it's not gonna go well? I guess I do the same thing to my daughter because when she was young, she knew my sigh, but now she goes, Dad, I don't like the tone of your voice. <laughs> Seriously. I'm like, I am your father. I am funding this wedding. She goes, that's because you love me. Sorry, I'm just like therapy for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem like this sigh of Jesus was just like, ugh, but it was like something bigger. I think a closer look is that his exasperation was there's who, but not just about the words, it's like who was behind these words. 
Jesus had been interacting with the enemy for a long time. And when he heard these words of the Pharisees, he didn't hear the words of men, he heard the words of Satan behind them. You see, Jesus had already had this conversation with Satan. He'd already had this long before this happened, but he's also had it on earth. So this is another repeated event. Just like when Jesus fed 4,000 again, this is another repeated event. You see, sometimes the lies or the words of Satan kind of sound so true. Like, why didn't Jesus just give them a sign? Like, they wanted to see some sign that was bigger than the signs he'd been giving. Like, he wanted, they wanted to see, like, a building fall in half, like something. You see, right after Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him, we see this in the very beginning of Mark. We talked about this whenever we first started. But it's explained a little bit more in Matthew chapter three. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. and that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love with him, I am well pleased. You see, God makes a declaration. This is my son. This very phrase becomes Satan's hook. Jesus is then led out to the wilderness. He's there for 40 days. He doesn't eat. Satan takes his opportunity to ask for a sign. Matthew, it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Show me a sign. Then later it says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against me. Satan's like, show me a sign. And so when he hears this come from the leaders and the Pharisees, and they're asking the same thing, Jesus isn't like sighing because of the voice of men. He's sighing because I see who's behind this. Because all Satan wants to do is get your eyes away from the bigger thing and onto the thing right in front of you. I know you've seen these things, but show me something now. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been like, I've seen so many amazing things from God, but this event in my life is so wrapped my heart and so wrapped my mind that God, you've got to come through with this. I've been there. I get there. It often has to do with how I'm physically feeling and doing. Like when I'm just having a really tough day, I just say, God, you just gotta take this away from me. I had one of those a couple months ago. It was awful. And then all of a sudden I was sitting in my chair and I, I just, my whole body hurt from this thing that I have and, and all of a sudden I felt peace. Like the kind of peace where I didn't wanna move. Like I, I'm like, I don't wanna move. I just don't want this peace to go away. Someone was praying for me. A, whole, a bunch of people were, or something was happening. And I don't want to move. And in those moments, God's like, that's what I have for you. Stop being so focused on the, on the bad. I will pull you out. William Barclay writes this. To Jesus, such a demand about signs was not due to the desire to see the hand of God. It was due to the fact that they were blind to his hand. 
To Jesus, the whole world was full of signs. The corn in the field, the wheat in the loaf of bread, the flowers on the side of a hill, all spoke to him of God. He did not think that God had to break in from the outside world. He knew that God was already in the world for anyone who had eyes to see. Then there's this third event. There's a boat ride. It's a new boat ride, but they've been riding in boats for a lot of time already. It's the same confusing conversation. I think the boat should have been a place for them where they were expecting something really, really cool to happen. Do you have a place in your life, I mean, trying to, I'm trying to resonate with, like when you go there, like, oh, there's a lot of great memories here. Maybe it's like a traditional place that you and a loved one go. I know my buddy T, they go to the same place for Valentine's Day most every year, him and, and Erica, and they, it reminds them and they tell the story and it brings back good memories. I have places in my life like that. I have a person in my life like that, this guy that... Um, I hadn't seen him in like 35 years, but he was like a, a, a junior or a senior in college and my wife and I were just freshmen just starting to date. And this senior goes, let me take you guys out. I'm from here. So he took us to Balboa Island and we rented bicycles and he bought us ice cream as if we were like 12, like ice cream, free ice cream. <laughs> but we always thought of this guy, his name's Dave Hively and we're like, man, I'm like, remember Dave? And that's what we always thought of as like this kind, beautiful act he had towards us. His name resounds with a beautiful thing. And then his daughter went to Biola with my daughter and then they became friends and that was just really trippy. Last week I was up at Hume Lake, a camp with our church, just kind of hanging out and I see this guy walk by who looks familiar. It was Dave. So like he went out in the lawn and me and my wife like stalked to find him or like, hey Dave, like we kept going behind these different people to see if he would turn around. It wasn't him, it wasn't him, it wasn't him, but I don't care. And finally we found him. And he was there, and we we're like, Dave. And he's like, oh my gosh. Because of social media, you see pictures of each other. And we hugged, and it was like, man, Dave, remember when you took us out? That was like so significant. You took us out to rent bikes and ice cream. And he's like, nah, I don't remember that. <laughs> I'm like, I hate you, Dave. No, but I came to the conclusion that he was such a beautiful, nice guy. He probably did that for lots of people. He probably just did. That's, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> it seems like time in the boat should have been special. A few chapters before, they were in a boat, and there was a storm, and Jesus calmed the storm. No doubt when they took the boat ride back from Legion, they must have been talking about that amazing event. And then they arrive on the other side of the sea. They're in a boat and there's thousands of people waiting for them. And then they left the boat after some really tough time of ministry with Jesus. Like, let's just go spend time in the boat. And then even before, after they fed the 5,000, they got into a boat. The wind picks up. Jesus isn't with them. All of a sudden, Jesus is walking on the ocean while they're on, on the sea. While the boat ride should have been like, what's going to happen next, Jesus. Like, I'm getting it. I'm here with you. And what happens? They're arguing that they only have one piece of bread. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody? You're trying to talk about bigger things, but they're just talking about medium things or low things. I remember having a conversation with somebody. My heart was just broken for the town where I live and the things that are happening and I'm like, man, I just, my heart is pained for families in this area. There's so much tough stuff. And literally the guy said, I know it's hard to live here. There's not even any good Chinese food. 
And I'm like, what are we talking about right now? Like he was like, yeah, like I, I wish there was China. And I'm like, no, I'm talking about like behind closed doors. There's a lot of bad stuff happening. And he's like, I know. I wish I was in the city to get Chinese. It's tough. It's a struggle. But what is Jesus really saying here? He's talking about that there's this leaven, that there's this thing that the, the, the leaders of, our, of this time, Jesus is like, I wanna have a bigger conversation and the, I'm talking about this bread as an analogy and the disciples are like, oh, he's just mad, we forgot to buy bread. What is Jesus saying? He's saying there's two prevalent things from people in power you have to watch for. For them, it was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees And there was this value of like just keeping the civil law over the moral law. In both situations, they're really focused on their reputation over their character. Another way of saying it, what Jesus was telling them, just a pinch of the leaven of the Pharisees in Herod is enough to transform what is good and useful into something bad and useless. He's saying, pull back. See things for what they really are. Pull back to the kingdom. The value of paying attention shows the story of God in your life. Are you paying attention? Sometimes we need other people to help us pay attention. Super easy to lose perspective when we don't. The other day, my wife, Lisa and I have been married for 33 plus years. She was rushing to the store to buy a few things and I'm like, hey, can you pick me up this snack that I like, or some chips or whatever. She came home and I'm like, where's, you know, she had all this food for like a party and I'm like, where's my snack? She's like, oh, I forgot. And I'm like, you are the worst wife ever. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. But I really wanted my snack. What if I all of a sudden viewed her as uncaring and unloving and like, do you even think about me? Because that's what we do. Like, am I in anything to you? She's like, it was a bag of chips. (laughs) You see, when we start to do that and we're like, man, like, I thought God was loving. If I did that, I would have lost perspective of the 33 years where she came home with way more than a bag of chips. I lose perspective of all the amazing things and I'm just thinking about what I want in the moment. That's what Jesus is talking about. Carl Moderis, who wrote this book called Speaking of Jesus, writes this. As I look over the history of Christendom, I notice our minds are where our hearts should be. The kingdom of Jesus has somehow become a religion of the mind rather than a spiritual response of the heart. We focus on psychological compliance rather than spiritual dependence upon the teachings of Jesus and the guidance of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. When you experience the significance of the kingdom, dependency just becomes natural. It just does. Jesus is inviting you to pull back metanoia to see things for what they are. And when you're losing your way, you just simply raise your hand to a friend and go, I'm losing my way. I'm spending too much time just thinking about this next thing. I'm losing myself. 
When I look back to that day, I do time to time about bringing my daughter to Sesame Street Live, I still think about the practical examples that God uses in that little journey to convict me of some things. Because I too get distracted by the things I come across. And sometimes distractions turn into a confusion of purpose. But I'm simply just settling on things. When I see that, things become clear. God uses that silly little story so many times in my life. He's like, this is the balloon man, let it go. (laughs) This is two policemen on horses. They're not there anymore, let it go. I have something greater for you, Dale. There are things that we need to deal with in our lives, right? Things come up. I'm not just telling you to get over stuff. Like there's real stuff, there's work stuff, there's there's worries, there's stresses, there's things that come our way. What I'm telling you is pause, pull back, see the kingdom, see the God of the provider, see the God of power, see the community of people where you go, I'm losing my way. Focus on the things that really, really matter. So when I get confused, I do a couple of things. I pay better attention to the events of provision and power. I would encourage you to do the same. There should be or could be a regular rhythm in your life where you're just simply even writing them down. It's not just like this weird like Thanksgiving kind of thing. What am I thankful for? But really like how has God provided? Either for me or for somebody else. Where am I seeing his provision? Where am I seeing his power? When I'm at my best, I'm writing these things down on a regular rhythm. And then I reread them over time. Because when we're reminded of things, we see things for what they are. Because another thing that I have found for my life is that these events, they should be building me towards greater maturity Because sometimes when they just kind of pile up on top of each other, it just causes more confusion. Greater maturity pulls back and says, let me see this for what it is. And when these things come together, these events, this maturity, the ability to go, man, there's nothing there for me, it starts to smell a little better. Our lives start to smell a little better the story we tell starts to be a little truer and a little more powerful. Paul explains it like this in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. That is the kingdom. That you can be a pleasing aroma to other people. Not out of an act of how much work you do, but the ability to pull back and allow God to do it with you. It's perspective, it's maturity, it's not giving too much time to the things that don't care about you at all, but it's giving time to the Lord who cares about you the most. I'm gonna invite the band out.